You're watching Global Trade This Week with Pete Mento and Doug Draper. Hello, everyone. I am Pete Mento, and uh, as is always, with me for this incredibly exciting episode of Global Trade This Week brought to you by Cap Logistics is the ammunition to my handgun, the gas to my combustion engine, the why to my what for, Doug Draper. Doug, it's great to see you, pal. Yes. Yeah, it's good to see you. It's a heck of an intro. I appreciate it. The, hey, um, partner. I, what can I say? Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I'm excited about halftime um, and my topic. I'm, I'm on a high after this weekend, and that's all I'm going to say because the halftime is going to going to roll it on on out. So it's good. Well, whenever then, a guy from Colorado says he's on a high after this weekend, it just really opens the door to a lot of jokes. Yeah, yeah. And then I have some experiences related to one of our topics. So I am totally stoked about personal experiences related to our topics today, which. Um, is uh, great examples, which how I learn and understand things. So, so much insight, Doug. <laughs> so much insight into the world of Doug Draper. Yeah. So with that, pal, I I opened, which means you get to start with the with the first topic, and we've got some pretty interesting show notes. The uh, after after halftime today, Doug and I are going to merge, much like Voltron. You know, we're going to merge our two topics into one uber topic um, yes. and, and really just get into it. So with that, Mr. Draper, why don't you go ahead and make it hot? Yes. So I was having uh, lunch with a buddy. This is not related to what I just said, but I was having lunch with a buddy last week and um, this may define the, uh, our, our age, but I had two menu options. I could scan the QR code or he says we have actual menus. Okay. And I'm like, get this QR code out of here. I want something I can hold in my hands. <laughs> but I but I ultimately ended up doing the QR code because I had to zoom in to see about the blackened chicken sandwich and what that was included in it. So that got me. The point of that story is QR code. So this topic is really about QR codes in our supply chain, um, specific to a couple of things that I think can really have an impact. And it's a, one of those, I guess it's the modern day version of RFID that was kind of the, the thing, I was about to say a decade ago, but I think it was 15 years ago, maybe more, where everybody was going to have RFID, it was going to be mandated by some of the big box retailers, it was going to solve the problems of the world. And so I think that, uh, that QR codes uh, are going to provide some in tremendous amount of insight, um, data analytics, which will help with um, understanding consumer behavior, which will impact supply chain decisions and also just the mundane trackability. So um, QR codes, here's some examples I said I learned with examples. Number one, satellite triangulation, triangulate. Satellites can triangulate location. It, um, it can be passive, but can be identified. So you can print a QR code and this technology, I believe, is out, or it is out there, but it's going to be refined and, and expanded. But So you print a QR code as the last thing off of the fulfillment or the, the e-commerce pick line that can then be used to figure out where this shipment is. It doesn't have to be 
scanned, a human doesn't have to engage with a device to scan it and then, then upload it. Uh, the QR codes uh, can basically do that um, uh, on their own. Infancy, lots of opportunity for expansion and, and efficiency. Um, as I mentioned, the, the uh, humans can scan it as well. So if it's going to a DC um, that may have concrete walls and may be difficult to identify and, and get that triangulization as one hell of a word. Um, so it can be uh, read by satellites. It can be scanned by humans. Um, and so those are things that's going to happen. The benefits of it is that simple awareness of where things are and people understanding that you can track where your shipment is. Uh, is a deterrent uh, to um, uh, a crime and theft. So there is um, en enhanced security with that in and of itself beyond knowing where your product is. Um, the data capture, I think, is the cool part because you, with the QR code, uh, it doesn't have to be on the physical product, can be on the packaging, either external or internal packaging. And you can sit there and ask the consumer and incite them to scan that code with additional discounts on the products they just received. And you can pose questions um, to talk about the supply chain and logistics experience, whether that's final mile, whether it's duration of time of order until you receive a tracking number or something like that. So the QR code market survey may be the right word specific to supply chain experience, which in turn can identify opportunities uh, for enhancement, whether that's uh, final mile options um, uh, that can be enhanced through the consumer. So data analytics, which is what we've spoken about many, many times before, that you can engage through an incentive, through a discount or something for the end consumer to provide immediate feedback. So dynamic QR codes and the ability for them to provide data and analytics is coming. And I think this is, I don't think this is my prediction that it's going to be quite a disruptor. Um, may not happen next month, but I think that you're going to see um, the adaptation of QR codes in those different forms uh, growing and companies that provide that technology really accelerating in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. So QR codes, wave of the future, my friend. Doug, um, I, I agree and I disagree, and I uh, and I hate QR codes all at once. So uh, there have been many, many characters on television that I really love, but probably my favorite is Ron Swanson from Parks and Rec, and I really do. Are you familiar with with Ron Swanson? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, there's there's some great yeah. one-liners that guy's come up with over the years. There are, yeah. And Doug, I, I can see how you also would probably really relate to old Ron. And, um, <laughs> I'm not sure you believe you know, me, but I know Ron Swanson. No, I do. Okay. I do. I do believe you. I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're older guys. We're fathers. We work. We, we get frustrated by the government. I mean, there's a lot of things you and I have in common with Ron Swanson. Yeah. But there, uh, there was that moment when there's a great, there's a great scene when uh, Aubrey Plaza's character, April, um, he calls, he calls her in and he says, there's this, I'm trying to order something and it knows my name. She says, the computer, it knows my name. It's saying, you know, if you want to save an extra 20%, Ron Swanson, just click here. It's like, how does it know my name? She says, well, these things called cookies and, you know, it gets to know you over time. And she says, if you really want to freak out, put your address on Google Earth. <laughs> and he does. And the next scene is him 
shot putting the entire computer like like the entire thing into the dumpster as hard as he can <laughs> he's so freaked out over the computer you know the the way that we have seen this leap and and bounds of the amount of information that can be held in such a small amount of something and when i first started to learn about qr codes the way someone explained to me was, it's just basically a way for, in a, in, a, in a pictograph form, someone to put a URL, a very specific URL code without you and me having to say, how do you make this contraption work? And like, you know, HTTP, www, whatever, backslash, forward slash, dot, dot, dot. You know, it's just, you take the picture and it sends you where, where you go. But it's also an interaction between a company and me, or a company and Doug, you know, and who knows what that interaction is doing between my digital device and this company, damn it. And, and what sort of information they're pulling from me. And, and that, like you said, you know, it's gathering information. It's allowing for interaction. Well, maybe I've had enough of interaction, Doug. Maybe I don't want any more interaction. As we were talking about earlier, you're talking to a dude who's many occasions thought about just exactly how remote can the cabin be that I want to buy away from everybody else. <laughs> All joking aside, there is um, tremendous, so, you know, that, that's the negative side of it. The positive side of this is some of these QR codes from an anti-theft, anti-counterfeit uh, standpoint are incredible. Being able to make a application on a phone, application on a scanning device, where that QR code can only really be read by something that's been cleared to read it. So if you're, um, if you're a transportation company or a consumer, and the ability to know what's in that package or to track that package requires a very specific piece of software on a very specific type of phone. You've, you've now transcended just being able to point click and read a menu. Now it's point click and being able to read what's in that manifest, or maybe there, there's a hierarchy where Doug can read stuff that I can't. Doug's able to see things on that QR code that I can't because he has a security clearance based on what the originator of that code has decided. There is a lot to be said here and a lot to be gained. And I agree with you. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot deeper than just a weird little barcode on the outside. And I think the pandemic, for a lot of reasons, because nobody wants to touch anything, has accelerated the growth and the yeah. applicability of this. Yeah, absolutely. I think that acceleration and the, and the adaptation. So agreed, my friend. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to throw this computer in the dumpster one day and then go eat a pound of bacon like once wants. It's yeah. going to happen. I love it. Um, all right, let's flip the script. What's your uh, topic, first topic for today? Uh, yeah, man, you know, I, there's so much to it. I had to have notes, but um, it is Christmas in July. It is, it, this week is Economist Christmas. It's a big week of information that is coming out that has, uh, has a lot to do with what will be happening over the course of the next 12 to 24 months with regards to our economy and how we're able to gauge how things are going. Uh, these are the types of numbers that they happen and you're like, oh well, yeah, the you know, super confidence is at so and so. And you're like, oh yes, of course it is. And oh inflation, it's you know, you know, most people realize inflation when they're done filling up their car or when they go to buy chicken and it's 107% more than it was a year ago. That that's how you interact with inflation. Um, or when they go to get a mortgage is when they realize that the Fed fiddles around with with interest rates. They don't understand how all these things culminate into having their foot on the throat of their business, the foot on the throat of their wallet, the foot on the throat of their lives. But this week, 
all of those things kind of come together, as they do most months, to be positively awful. Um, so today, the consumer um, confidence numbers came out, and they were worse, as you and I were talking about before we got started. Um, you know, add on top of that, that Thursday, we're going to see the eye of the real hurricane here, which is an indication of the economy either growing, being stagnant, or going backwards. And if, if you know what a recession is, that's normally speaking, mm-hmm. two quarters of negative growth. And you've already got the White House through its spin doctor saying, well, normally that's how we would, we would define a recession. But hey, never had one with job growth like this, never had one with wages being steady like this. How can you say we're in a recession when everybody's working? You know, so there's, there's a lot of spin doctoring going on where they're saying new economy, new rules, new definitions. And I say, bullshit. A recession is a recession. And if we're in one, it doesn't matter how it's being consumed by people. It is what it is. Uh, And if those numbers are negative, you're going to hear some madness, Doug. You're going to hear people on the conservative side of the economic world saying, welcome to the recession. It's all the White House's fault. You're going to hear people from the White House saying, it's not a recession, everything's fine. Sort of like Kevin Bacon in Animal House when they were, you know, when, when everything goes crazy during the period, it's like, remain calm, everything everything will be well, you know. Um, the, re- the reality is, folks, that no recession is ever one president's fault. No recession is ever one year's fault or one decision's fault. It takes a very long time for everything to catch up to itself and for these things to happen. Um yeah, and then the last thing I wanted to make sure is that we talk about uh, two things. Wednesday, tomorrow, um, you're going to get the Fed's reaction to the prime rate. And if it's going to go up or down, will it be the three quarters of a point? Will it be a whole point? Are they going to totally freak out based on the inflation numbers that come out? You know, we'll find out. And then Friday, uh, those inflation numbers, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Doug, uh, every indication is that the inflation numbers are going to be even higher. And... This is one of those situations where politically people are demanding action. They don't understand it. All they know is it's killing them. It's killing them at the grocery store and that there are all of these things that have to do with our business that are causing inflation to be worse. There's all these things that have to do with our business that are desperately negatively impacted by the cost of all these things, whether it's fuel, whether it's pay. Uh, So much of the supply chain is human beings still. And human beings are demanding more money, which increases the cost of transportation and logistics, warehousing, all of it, Uh, and interest rates as well. You want to build a warehouse, which we need desperately? Guess what? You're going to have to pay more for that insurance, uh, for the uh, mortgage cost. You want to buy yourself a new truck? It's going to cost more for that loan. And there are a lot of people who are financing repairs on ships, on warehouses, on trucks, and that's going to rise up that cost as well. Mm -hmm. So this is Economist Christmas Week. Um, I just wish it felt, made me feel like singing, drinking hot cocoa, and being cheery. There are no presents under this tree, pal. Mm. All good points. The one uh, that I'm most uh, interested to see how people react is the inflation numbers on Friday. And I say that because it's tangible, right? A yeah. three-quarter point or a one-point uh, uh, raise uh, – um, if I'm not buying or have a large purchase, it doesn't really affect me. Uh, inflation affects every single person, regardless of status, um, religion, political affiliation. So that one, I think, is going to have the most 
The other two are going to be spin, spin doctored both ways. It'll create a little bit of confusion. It'll generate more frustration. Uh, there'll be more opposition. But I think the inflationary number uh, on Friday is going to be the one that is going to be the most telling on, on what transpires. It would have been interesting to have the inflationary, if all this stuff's going on in one week, throw the inflation numbers on Wednesday and the interest rate on yeah. Friday, right? I mean, it's not like they're going to gain any more information in 48 hours. So, I, I you know, I, I don't know. I was just... Flip them around. I think that would help with the decision. Wednesday's release would help with the decision on Friday. I think if you flip those two reports, they'd be more impactful uh, to the, uh, the general consumer. So. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Doug. But I think that there's there's some thought like that. There's some intention that goes into that decision. And I, I think that over the course of the next 60 days, something that I would really start looking at is you have a lot of earnings releases that are coming out. We have a lot of technology companies, a lot of retail companies, a lot of um, you know new newer e-com companies that are beginning to release numbers that are, are less than favorable, and um, you know, and, and a lot of these places are in more expensive real estate areas. And one of the things that had always been consistent in this economy was very expensive real estate has always moved. So San Francisco, Boston, New York, you know, Chicago, um, Seattle. Uh, Portland, Oregon, million dollar apartments, snapping up left and right condos, you know, $2 million. And uh, you take a loan against the, the value of your shares, you sell your shares to get that loan. And then you go and you buy these houses. Well, they're not moving like they used to. Mm. A quick search on Zillow in San Francisco shows that one in Boston as well. You know, these two, $3 million homes, 1.5, 1.7, 1.1 through there, condominiums, Apartments not moving like they used to. There's a reason for that. As a matter of fact, we're going to start seeing those homes come on as people use their their um, they buy these as something that they put into their portfolio as an asset. So you're going to see people start selling those um, for cash and starting to use that as something to hold on to as that is being their their last resort for for their finances. You're going to start seeing that because interest rates are so high, inflation has gotten so bad. They need to actually get to the cash. And I'm telling you, Doug, a month and a half from now, I'll be shocked if I'm wrong about that. But the luxury real estate market is about to see a real punch in the nose. Hmm. Yeah, interesting take. All right. The the most entertaining, uh, the, the topics outside of halftime are informative. Halftime is really entertaining. And we got to have that with our audience. And of course, it's brought to us by Cap Logistics, uh, you know, please visit caplogistics.com or capworldwide.com for uh, for services uh, in our industry. So, with that being said, you you know what, you go first because it's going to be confrontational, and then I'll end on a on an interesting note. So, <laughs> Doug knows it's going to be confrontational because I'm talking about one of his favorite topics: drones. Doug hates drones. Like, I hate the Atlanta Falcons and the Dallas Cowboys and the New York Yankees. Doug hates drones like I hate salad. Like, Doug hates drones, right? So, um, Doug, I don't know how to break it to you, bud, but I I think it might be time for you to wave the white flag. Mm. All right, fire away. It might what? be time. And, and, and here, here's why. So, there are a number of companies, not the least of which is a company that is owned by Google or Google's parent, right? Alphabet based out of China, who is now in very cost-effective nature 
been able to um, make reusable, extremely nimble, and easy to use drones that are delivering up to seven pound payloads hundreds of times a day all over the world. Now, way above and beyond that, the drone industry in, in Asia is approaching $50 billion in profits for commercial uses. You had stories last week of how drones were being used to bring life-saving medicines all over the world, how drones are being used to actually transport people now. Um, so pilotless drones to transport people where helicopters would have been sent in the past to get them where they need to be. Um, if we can trust people, we can certainly trust cargo. Uh, and, and now you have companies like Tesla and companies um, like GM and the such that are beginning to create car cargo um, just cargo-driven drones just for cargo, and people who are starting to design drone ports just for cargo. Doug, I'm telling you, you're going to die on this hill alone if you don't get a little softer on it. Uh, the, the change is coming, pal. Mm -hmm. The change is coming, and it's it's got a big D on it for drones, Doug. Those are all really good points, Pete, but drones are stupid. Um, I say to you, your technocracy is dead on arrival. Yeah! <laughs> That's all. Until if until a drone can move like really substantive weight, you know, I get medical. Okay, I'll I will wave the white flag on that one. You need to get some medical stuff to somebody that's in a very rural area that weighs seven pounds. All right, that's pretty limited. Maybe some medication or something. But I just don't. I I. Just, I don't see it. The weight, there's so much more in the world that there's so much minimal amount of stuff that weighs seven pounds or less. You know, before it was two pounds and three pounds. Pop that up to like 70 pounds and, you know, maybe we'll have something here. And the other thing that I, that um, the security aspect of it, right? You got kids that are going to be popping off, trying to shoot them out of the air and things of that nature and the regulatory problems that are coming up. I think there were some issues with uh, with Amazon drones. So anyway, uh, I'm not there yet. I'm on the hill. I know there are people behind me. Um, you know, I got a, a William Wallace type of uh, uh, a mentality against this one and, and charging it. So not there yet, my friend. Doug, I love your tenacity. I love it. You're, you are Grandpa Simpson, just <laughs> shaking the cane at everybody at the old folks home. And I have so much love for it, pal. Yeah. All right, go ahead, Doug. What's up? All right. Hit me with your half <clears throat> All right, man. So this is a story about how a flamethrower can really help divide the importance of, uh, of friendship. So I, I, I'll keep this this one super, she, uh, super, super sweet uh, short. So this past weekend, I went to a college reunion. Um, and I was, as you know, I was in a fraternity. I'm a believer in fraternities. If they're done right, it can be very beneficial. Um, and... Uh, there was 23 guys in the class that I went through. 19 showed up at one of our friends' house on a lake. So out of 23, 30 years later, 19 of them showed up. And it wasn't all Kansas City guys. There was, I mean, literally L.A., New York, Miami, Chicago, Denver. <clears throat> they all came in. And, you know, the first half of the of it was telling nothing but stories. And I was, I was um, you know, uh, literally crying because we were laughing so hard and people like, I don't remember that story. And just, it was, it was amazing. And the camaraderie and we picked up right where we left off and fraternity or no fraternity. If you have a group of tight friends, 
and you have that experience, um, it, uh, it, it can come together. And then the second half of the weekend was really get into conversations about how your career is gone. What, what type of things did you miss out on? What, what are your biggest fears as you get older? And some really heavy you know, type of discussions, which helps perpetuate the trust of friendship. And when we do this again in five years, uh, we'll keep relative dialogue moving forward and having a general care for one another. And when I was flying back uh, on, on Sunday, it just helped validate that having a core group of friends, wherever they may be, is just important for the health and the psyche of an individual. And don't take those for granted. Reach out. It's even easier now to stay in contact. I know there's group texts and everybody has funny memes they send to their buddies and all that kind of stuff. But don't underestimate the importance and the value that friendship can bring to you, your health, um, your psyche, and moving forward. So I had such an amazing time. So here's where the flamethrower comes in. So the guy that we that hosted the event is one of those guys that has everything. You name it, he's got it. Doesn't matter how quirky it is. He's got this massive smoker. He's got every toy you want on the on the ocean or on the, on the lake. He's got this amazing Sono sound system where you literally just walk into another room and the music follows you and everything else. So uh, collectively, we got together and said, will you get somebody that has everything? You get him a flamethrower. And um, he was coming around on a boat ride uh, at night whenever he was taking some of us uh, or some of the guys out turns the corner, we crank Hell's Bells from ACDC, and we fire up this flamethrower. That costs like $1,200, right? This thing is not, you know, something small. Shoots like 35, 40 feet in the air and and just fired it up and everybody was screaming and it was, we were acting like kids. And generally, our friend that hosted came off and he's like, this is perfect. I mean, he was all, he was a little buzzed, you know, but he was almost in tears about how generous it was for his friends to think of something out of the box to give to him on such a special weekend. So anyway, that's the flame flower connection to the, the thing. But don't take your friends for granted. Stay connected. Stay relevant. And I had one hell of a weekend, uh, and it was great. Uh, Doug, I went from this moment where I'm like, this is some real Dr. Phil stuff, you know? What I'm saying to you is you need to find opportunities to embrace your masculinity and your friendship to, do we have to have a talk about responsible flamethrower ownership? Like, I, I, you know, what type of group of middle-aged men buy each other? I know they're unregulated, too. I know there's no regulation on, yeah. on flamethrowers. Like, you can, you can just go buy one. That's what we did. Like, so there you all are half in the bag playing with fire yep. this is why we can't have nice things doug this is why we can't have nice things decisions like this yep. so yep. way to go yes bud. yeah well, the fuel is 60 yeah. percent gas 40 percent diesel and it shoots out this spray of liquid fuel in order for <laughs> <laughs> the flame to catch you know it's an instant but anybody that was down on the on uh, uh, on the fire pit area flaming this thing, you just walk away covered. It was like napalm, man. You're just covered with with uh, fuel. It didn't matter because we were with my buddies, having a good time. Having a good time, you know, just play with a flamethrower, <laughs> half of the bag, like responsible exactly. young Exactly. You know, yeah. Next year we're going to buy him a fully automatic AK-47. Maybe maybe some claymores. Yeah. 
know, it's guy stuff. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, okay. 3D print that. Right. Yeah. You know, we'll see how it goes. Anyway. <laughs> we'll see how one it goes. hell of yeah. a weekend. Well, that was halftime. Yep. Yeah. That was halftime brought to you by our good friends at uh, Cap Logistics. And as promised at the beginning, we have a combination of our last, we're, we're, we're putting it all together. Um, you're putting your chocolate in the peanut, in my peanut butter yeah. here. We are, we are mixing, we are mixing, uh, my Stolichnaya with your seven up. So, um, you want to kick it off, Doug? How do you, how do we want to yeah, do this? I'll kick it off. I think mine's a good, uh, you know, leap into it. <clears throat> then we'll go. Anyway, mine is simply like, why are ocean containers or ocean carriers subtly getting into the air freight business? Going from the high seas to the blue skies. I think we've seen a lot of discussion. Uh, Maersk Air Cargo has popped up. CMA, MSC, they're all kind of getting into the air business. And um, really, it's a handful of reasons, right? Um, it's a broader service offering, integrating the logistics. I think over the supply chain um, craziness of the last two and a half years, there is opportunity when the vessels are full, where people are just at a necessity flipping things to, to air freight. These ocean carriers are smart people and they're realizing if they are in that discussion uh, and in the room where those things are happening, it uh, can be spin and sold as integrated. The thing that you're noticing are integrated logistics. I'm noticing partnerships at first, right? They're aligning themselves with other air carriers. So they're not doing some acquisition yet. There's a few companies that are doing acquisitions and literally buying aircraft, but they're outsourcing it to companies to, uh, uh, to run and operate. You will see some more acquisitions in the future, and this is really starting to take off in the European market. So here in America, I think you're going to hear more about it, um, but it's kind of overseas starting first. The other thing that we've spoken about, Pete, which I think is the underlying most important thing, is if you own and control the rails, you can control your destiny. And so this is just another way where they own and control the, the, the high seas, and they're going to transi transition that into the air freight as they've seen that market grow. Uh, and the supply chain chaos isn't any, uh, ending anytime soon. So it's a natural transition to other modes of transportation uh, that these companies can afford to jump into, uh, the ocean uh, freight carriers can afford to jump into. And uh, I think it's an interesting wave and it will continue to happen. So that's my take on it. I think yours is a good dovetail. So uh, let her rip. Yeah. Well, Doug, you, you bring up all these great points here. You know, the the... The opportunity that they have is incredible. These, these ocean carriers are flush with cash. And as they began to make acquisitions, particularly in the forwarding space, what they were, what they were probably pleasantly happy to realize is these forwarders that they bought, these integrators that they bought, the air freight was, was very uh, profitable, lucrative. It filled in a lot of gaps where, where maybe in times of financial um, you know, uncertainty, air freight always, always pulls them through. And I can say with a tremendous amount of you know, my, my own personal experience, air freight's one of those things that just comes out of nowhere. You'll have an opportunity with a client who is, finds themselves in a desperate situation and um, you made a lot of money out of nowhere, S seemingly out of nowhere. And it's got nothing to do with you. It's got nothing to do with you other than you just happen to have space and you happen to have or a relationship with a carrier 
and you have a customer who found themselves in a really bad position and you were able to make a good deal. And that's what it was, you know, um, and, and your, and your customer trusts you and you happen to have the best price in a pretty awful market and you made it happen for them. And air freight is very lucrative. So now you've got these ocean carriers who bought freight forwarders and, uh, those freight forwarders now have the backing financially of these behemoth ocean companies who are saying, wow, you guys like doing leases? Let's do a bunch of them. I'm like, really? You want to, want to go and get equipment? Yeah, why not? We do it all the time. You know, ship, plane, who cares? You know, and they're, and they're going and they're doing it. Um, and, and they're saying, this is probably, given the way that economies go, there's probably going to be a pretty impressive opportunity once the ocean freight market dies down a little bit. Odds are the air freight market's going to come back. And you know what? They're right. Because if you look at it historically, air freight markets tend to go wacky when ocean freight markets tend to get quiet. And that's been the case for a long, long time. Air freight rates have been nuts for a lot of external reasons, but they're probably going to get, they're going to stay that way um, even after the ocean rates tend to get better. Another thing that you bring up that I think uh, when we talk about the rails, right? Uh, this is a situation where you can make a port anywhere and port congestion up and down the East coast. You are limited to the places you can bring a ship in. You're still limited on airports, but there's more of them and you can airport shop. And because of the way these places are set up, you can say, I'm going to bring it into Toronto and I'm going to drive it and bond across the Canadian border and bring it to the U.S. and distribute it. Or I'm going to bring it into Buffalo or I'm going to bring it into Akron, wherever. But I'm going to make it work for me and I'm going to use my rails, my, my internal ability to push things through uh, based on what works for my client mix and the cargo mix. It really is. Uh, it gives you ability for more creativity, to have more artistic expression with it which is probably a really weird way to put it, I guess. But these are the times that they've got the money and they've got the people and they've got the clients where they can probably pull it off. Doug. Now, unfortunately, leading into my topic, couldn't have picked the worst time. Um, you've got very little faith in our infrastructure. You have carriers that were bailed out financially, that bailed out again during COVID, that bailed out again during COVID so that they could keep their people working. And now in a summer where everybody can't wait to fly somewhere, we just can't keep the planes moving because we didn't keep people flying. The money was picked up and the money was used to return profits to shareholders, not to keep people employed. And now they can't keep the planes moving. They can't keep maintenance going because they simply don't have enough people. The number of times I personally have been waiting on a flight and have been told it's been canceled or it's been delayed because we just don't have personnel for the equipment is ridiculous, Doug. And it's really insulting when this is happening at the same time that these carriers are celebrating just historical financial outcomes and saying to our faces, wow, things are great, aren't they? Just fantastic financially. You're like, yeah, they're great. I'm sleeping on the floor of Logan Airport because I, I don't want to go home because I got four hours before my flight to wherever it goes. And I've got British Airways telling me, if you want to fly to Great Britain or anywhere in Europe on us, please wait till September. Because, you know, we can't sell more than 100,000 seats a day. And we're being told that all these carriers are overselling flights. They know that they can't operate them, but they're still selling the space on them, which to me sounds a little sketchy. And we don't seem to have any governmental oversight that's willing to call them on their bluff because they are truly 
the kind of industry that we really do rely on, and they're essential, and nobody wants to kick them down about it. It's a sad state of affairs, Doug, particularly when you and I work in an industry that relies on them, utterly relies on them to keep things moving yeah. around here. Yeah, the congestion piece, Peter, your your, uh, your take on that is is epic, and you travel a little bit more than I do, but my flight on Sunday was going to depart at 1.30, got delayed, got delayed, got canceled. They could book me on a flight 10 a or 10 p.m. on Monday, so it'd be a whole other day and a half. So we ended up just saying screw it and buying a one-way ticket on another carrier, pretty inexpensive, but the whole trip cost me an extra 250 bucks, right? And you know what? That sucks, and I complained, and uh, and we did it, and and we moved on. So I think the congestion, the need, is greater than the frustration level that you have, and that's you and I speaking. And the cargo is the same way. It's like well, we're doing the best that we can. Um, it's crazy. And the last thing I'll say is the worst airport in the world to get stuck for over 12 hours is the Kansas City Airport. It's horrible. Kansas City. Oh, it's, it's awful. Horrible. It's awful. Yeah. The way, the way that that security set up for each individual little cubby hole, you know, and you go through it and then you're stuck there for the two gates and you got to go yeah. back out of it. And yeah, it's terrible. It's, it's, it, it's absolutely awful. I hate it. Best, best airports to be stuck. I mean, I've, I've, legitimately probably flown maybe 15, 16 million miles in my career. I, I got the points to prove it, man. The best ones to be stuck at long-term, definitely Minneapolis, St. Paul, fantastic airport to be stuck at long-term. Great services. Uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, great one to be stuck at long-term. And then again, my humble opinion, right? Uh, and I'm a huge fan of Charlotte, and here's why. Uh, rocking chairs, lots of different options. And um, if you get stuck there, uh, lots of places where you can stay overnight. I've never been able to not find a hotel room in Charlotte. Um, but Kansas City's awful. LA's terrible. Absolutely terrible. JFK is awful. And LaGuardia is like getting stabbed in the heart. LaGuardia is a never ending disappointment. Philly, terrible. And Miami is my own circle of hell. Nice. Frankly. My own circle of well, hell. Well, that could be, uh, you know, a topic on a show, yeah. like the top. <clears throat> top worst airports and we, and, and we spin it but i'll agree charlotte and i was specifically going to say the rocking chairs charlotte's pretty legit i i it's great oh, great yeah, it's great. great yeah and the smaller the airport the worse security is because they're convinced that they're going to find you know somebody from from al shabbat or something with you know a nuclear device in in their in their bag um but also some of those small airports like you know, High Point and stuff. Some of the, sometimes the food is just awesome. The new the new New Orleans terminal is great. The food there is unbelievable. Like 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 Dookie Chase and Cafe Dumont and like unbelievable. Like you can get legit food mm -hmm. at the airport. It's almost worth flying through mm -hmm. and eat. Um, but Detroit also great airport. You know the old Northwest terminal that became Delta. I know. You just rattling them what off. A nerd, I am. You're rattling them right? off. Yeah, yeah. Well, all I've, you got to remember, Doug, that for a solid 20 years, I flew, I flew probably three times a week, um, mm. every week for my whole life. And then I was flying international for at least two weeks out of that month, every single month. That's all I did was fly. And now I just sit here and complain in my eight by 10 home office. I just bitch and whine about not going yes. anywhere. But we'll have to spin that somehow. And um, I think that's going to shut us down, close yeah. us out for uh, another uh, edition of Global Trade this week. Totally want to thank Ron Swanson. Sorry, Pete Mento for being uh, my co-host. I love the dynamic. 
the fact that we agree on a lot of stuff, we certainly disagree on other, which makes the show interesting and fun for our audience. And Cap Logistics, Bueno, thanks for uh, taking care of us week in and week out. We can't thank you enough. So with that, Pete, enjoy your week, and uh, we'll chat you up next next uh, next week. All right, take care. Thanks.